0: So my heart, soul, mind, strength challenge to our community this month, I I forgot to mention this last week, but I'm encouraging you over the month of August to invite someone from this community into your hobby. Um, Maybe your hobby hobby is dining out, that's legit, maybe it's a game night like I'm organizing for this Thursday for some people, Uh, maybe it's fishing, hike, whatever it is, when we invite people into the things that we're passionate about. That becomes a context through which we can share more of who we are and that builds community and that's one way that we can strengthen our community as we begin to re-engage together not just on Sunday mornings but throughout the week and throughout the month so I really encourage you to do that look for an opportunity Um, whether your hobby is incredibly cool or wildly nerdy no judgment just throw it out there over Facebook or some, an email, just say, hey, I'm getting together to do, do this. Would anyone like to um, join me? That'd be awesome. Okay, we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 19 today, verses 11 and 21, a fairly famous pass- passage. We looked at it last week. Last week was kind of part A. This is part B. I don't think there's going to be a part C. I think we'll move on from here. I'm going to read the passage. And as we've done in Revelation, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it will be up here on the screen, but I also invite you to try and picture it imaginatively, because Revelation is such a powerful, multi-sensory book, and if we just kind of read the black and white, we're missing, because this is given as a, you know, 8K, fully surround sound, bass thumping in your chest vision to John, and so it's important to be read and experienced like that. So John says, beginning in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God." And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for a great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw a beast and the kings, sorry, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army but the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So last week, I, I really focused on responding to the question if revelation is so symbolic and very figurative are we supposed to read into this text that Jesus is like literally like really coming back or is that meant to be kind of a figurative description of the ways that God invades our reality sometimes in the little kingdoms that are our hearts and I think I tried to lay out a New Testament case for no this is spoken of from start to finish not just in the New Testament but the entire biblical story God walks in the garden of Eden in the cool of the day. All of reality is his. He's the creator of all things visible and invisible. He's Lord over all, which means he's not content to just cede ultimate dominion over visible things, visible reality to the enemy or the forces of sin and death. He's going to come back to restore and redeem. In Acts 1 verses 9 to 11, When Jesus ascends, it says, After Jesus said these things, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so what we're seeing here, it might be a symbolic depiction, and there's some arguments on is Jesus really going to come back on a white horse. Is that meant to be li- uh, that part of it literal? Is the symbolism literal? Uh, or does it just speak to Jesus coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead? So there's some of those discussions amongst people who study this for a living, but everyone lands on the same area, which is Jesus is coming again literally, bodily, to interrupt this present age and usher in the full age of the kingdom of God. Um, So let's just go over, throughout this series we've been looking at the four, I wouldn't say dominant, because not all of them are dominant, but the four views that over 2,000 years of Christianity, um, people have read and interpreted Revelation through. And all of these views, when we get to Revelation 19, they, they line up, Pretty much, they overlap. They're going to get some of the details. They're going to disagree on some of the details. But all of these views identify the writer as Christ. And this as being a proclamation and a promise of his coming again. To destroy the forces of sin and evil. But let's move through these views pretty quickly. Uh, This will be old hat if you've tracked in the series so far. So the first view is the Preterist view, and if you have a timeline from when the Revelation was given just before the end of the first century all the way till now, this view says, this view reads Revelation as fulfilled prophecy, the vast majority of it. It's already been fulfilled within 50 years of it being given. So when we read Revelation, we're reading ancient history. And verses, sorry, chapters 4 to 19 refer to things that happened soon after this revelation was given to John. And then the promises of chapter 20, 21, and 22 will unfold in the future. The historicist view, oh, sorry, so the preterists believe that this is a depiction of the return of Jesus. Now, there is a really, I would argue, I say it's unorthodox, Uh, there, there is a preterist view. Called full preterism. See, some of these views have like branching um, subviews, but there is a view called full preterism, which says the entire book of Revelation has been fulfilled, as in like final judgment, new heavens, and new earth, and we're living in that new heavens and new earth now. I, that's a bridge too far for me. I don't think that, uh, I mean, really what you're getting to there is that Jesus is never going to return physically, he just returns spiritually and. Reality will continue on forever and ever but that's not even close to the majority preterist view almost every preterist will say the vast majority of revelation has been fulfilled except for God's final confrontation of um, the prostitute on the beast which we looked at the last chapter the final destruction of evil final instantiation of God's kingdom. The next view is the Historicist view, which reads Revelation as mo- kind of the chapters roughly correlate to major events that have been unfolding as the timeline of history has been unraveling. This view also represents Christ's return, but his destruction of the beast is kind of targeted at the Roman Catholic Church. And I've said this before, the Historicist view is, uh, looks at the, the main villain of the book of Revelation, as, or equating the main villain, which is the New Babylon, with the Roman Catholic Church and its its view of apostasy from biblical Christianity, but they would still say what we're seeing here is Jesus returning again to judge and then to resurrect uh, the believing Christians into eternal life. The next view is the futurist view. This is the most um, common one. This is the one that, if you're certainly if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s or were in church during that time, this kind of peaked in terms of popularity. This is like the left-behind rapture, seven-year tribulation, mark of the beast. Uh, It's sort of these major concepts in Revelation that get turned into this very tight timeline. And it says most of Revelation hasn't happened yet. The letters at the start, yes, but chapters four onwards are going to take place just before and through and after a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. So there's going to be this condensed fulfillment of prophecy happening in the future. And what we're seeing here is Jesus coming back and taking part in the battle of Armageddon, uh, which which ties into the sixth bowl of chapter 16. And Christ's victory then ends the great tribulation and he's going to establish a millennial reign. Again, there's different views on that. We'll get to that next week. But the basic idea here is still Jesus is coming back. There's just, as you can see, some disagreements on what exactly is happening before and maybe what exactly happens after. And the last view is the idealist view, which reads Revelation as a... I think the easiest way to think about this is, you know, when we talk about um, Ephesians and the armor of God and the reality of spiritual warfare, think of Revelation as that theme in Ephesians just writ really large and wide. So it's saying life is spiritual warfare, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian in the 2nd century, 6th century, whether you're living in Africa, if you're living in the West, if you're living in Asia, there will be certain patterns that will emerge in every age as the kingdom of God goes into and overtakes ground against the kingdom of darkness. And what we're seeing in Revelation is a symbolic depiction that will apply to most Christians in any age as the church breaks forth in mission and counter-forces attempt to squash the influence of the kingdom of God. And so the, the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments, these are things that Christians should expect, according to this view, to kind of cycle as the kingdom of God expands. But what we're seeing here is Jesus is returning, literally and in bodily form, to put an end to, this, to the current age that is still infected and corrupted from sin and death. Now, why do we keep circling back through all of these views? Well, I want to say two things. One is, even having a very basic understanding of these views should engender some humility, especially if we've been exposed to the view, which we've presumed to be the biblical view, and we're not aware of other views that maybe take us in some different directions eschatology, certainly in the 80s and 90s, which is study of the end times, was something that many Christians and churches got very, very dogmatic about. In fact, some churches would even put in their statement of beliefs not just an affirmation of, let's say, the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is coming back, the judge of the living and the dead, but they made as part of their core beliefs as a church the particular mechanisms and events leading up to it and after, through it and afterwards. And you had to sort of believe that particular view. And that, for some churches and some Christians, engendered a lot of arrogance. They, they read Revelation as some kind of big puzzle that they were clever enough to solve. They figured out all the pieces and how it put together. and They rearranged things in order to fit kind of a, in some cases, a predetermined outcome. And I think in learning about the other views, just like we do this with any view which has historical grounding in the Christian faith and a view that can be made from Scripture itself, it's not just a view that a Christian holds, but smart, wise, thoughtful, biblical Christians at some point have held this view, that should engender some humility. And I think that's really important today. And it ties into my next point, which is, I think, I mean, I'll I'll just be, I'll be as honest as I can be. I have pastoral concerns over some modern futurist interpretations. I think that can lead people down a really disruptive and even destructive path. I've seen a lot of people, and and I'm only speaking, and this is anecdotal, I've only pastored two churches, I don't have a wide net of experience, Um, but I still wanna say, I have seen people waste a tremendous amount of time, energy, money trying to figure out and get clear on all the details and the timeline and the events and what's happening over here and how that ties into over here. And yet if you fast forward a year or two years or three years, A, they don't really seem to be much farther ahead than they were five years previous. And at least in my interactions with them, their passion and devotion to eschatological precision around end-time stuff and the mark of the beast and who's the Antichrist, maybe for some it does. The people that I've connected with, I want to be honest and say, it doesn't seem to translate to a lot of broader Christian maturity. It doesn't seem to translate to a lot of broader discipleship energy. It's like all their energy slowly gets sucked into... This fascination, and it is fascinating. You know, I, I was there at different points of my Christian journey, but I want us to be exposed to other views, because, in some ways of understanding and teaching the futurist perspective, it can become kind of like a black hole that sucks people in and doesn't actually lead to transformation in Christ. I would argue that the more fixated one becomes around end-time speculation, generally speaking, the more um, holistically, spiritually unhealthy they become. We are called to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to bring the truth of Scripture to bear on every dimension of our life. And that demands that we have some kind of a calibration and balance. And, And don't just throw ourselves into a topic of interest that we're particularly passionate about. Now, I know that's a generalization, but here's another one. In my experience, it tends to be futurists, or what I would call even fixated futurists, who are the most susceptible to getting caught up into conspiratorial thinking around all the things that are happening in the world. They have this grid, this timeline in their mind's eye that, like, this is how these are the things that fall into place, And as things happen in the world, they're trying to connect them all the time. And often, in my conversations with these people, and they're earnest and they love God and they want to understand these things, but even their views are kind of a Frankenstein mix of uh, symbols in Revelation and ideas that they've heard about somewhere, something that a youth pastor told them at some point in the past, Something they saw in a movie, something they read in a book, and it all kind of comes together. And once I ask two or three clarifying questions, it's it feels a little like a house of cards. And I know it's not well intended, but sorry, I know it is well intended, but um, it can really begin to play in an unhealthy way with your worldview. And instead of going out into the world and saying, "God, I'm called to live and honor you today. How do I do that right here, right now, in my family, in my marriage, in my workplace?" In, in in light of the things that are going on in the world, we kind of leap over a lot of those first things I mentioned and try and figure out what's going on. And I just I don't see that ever really being fruitful, to be honest. I've even I've, I've met people over the course of this pandemic who have told me they actually are having a hard time connecting with other Christians because. that Christian doesn't believe that blank. Uh, And by blank, I want you to put in there some kind of like very precise understanding of maybe how Israel's involved in the end times or what the mark of the beast actually is. And so they have a very precise view of something and they will say to me, I'm finding it difficult to connect with other Christians who love Jesus, are moving forward in mission, are inviting me into their hobby, but they can't actually do it because for them, this view is so important that it actually interferes with their ability to engage as part of the church. And like, guys, that's not good. Like, it's just, that's not good. We can have grace with each other. Um, We can, and we should, certainly as a covenant people who value freedom in Christ, Uh, I'm not particularly convinced of the futurist view, but I understand how people get there. And I respect people who take the time to do that work. But whenever our theology around some of these secondary things, not that Jesus is coming back, we all agree on that, but the mechanism, exactly how it's going to happen, if that begins to actually disrupt your ability to love and connect with other Christians, that's like red flag, like that's not good. And often, not always, but often, it's futurists with a very fixated, precise view of end times theology that fall into that trap. Most, um, most of the, uh, all of the people actually, and this is just me, all of the people that I know who have retracted themselves from church over my almost 20 years of being a pastor... Uh, because of disagreements on eschatology, were futurists. Because they, they didn't think that the church was pure enough, right enough, clear enough. And it, and it bothered them. They couldn't worship Jesus beside a preterist. And again, we've talked about this. In the Reformed tradition, which is a um, strong, conservative, capital-E evangelical movement, you've got Martin Luther, Kevin DeYoung, John Piper, and R.C. Sproul, who all have each a different view of the eschatology. So I have concerns when our futurist interpretations, or any interpretation, interfere. It breaks my heart as a pastor to hear people say that. I've had people say that to me. And it breaks my heart. So I want, in learning about these other views, to help us to recognize the need for humility. Now, really quickly, let's talk about a misapplication of this text Um, where it can often go wrong and where it has gone wrong historically and where it can go wrong today. And I think for me, one of the biggest ones, and I just want to talk about this today because it has a lot of application, is just in the area of forced faith. Conformity by force. If you look at Revelation and if you look at the judgment that comes on the beast, which is a stand-in for Rome and the new Babylon and political power, The beast is condemned and judged because of its coercive force that it brings to bear in forcing people into its agenda and forcing people into an antichrist agenda. One commentator said, the basic message of the beast of Rome or any other empire or cultural political power that inhabits that role of Babylon is conform." Or we'll just do away with you. We'll just slowly suffocate you. Economically, physically, relationally. But far too many... I mean, the irony, and again, it's heartbreaking, is that far too many Christians have failed to see that when we attempt to coerce people into becoming Christians, we're actually participating in sort of the system of the beast. When we bring threat and social pressure and maybe not political pressure but in some instances in some countries you can bring a lot of political pressure on people to believe and to conform to christian ideals um i think revelation would say this is really really dangerous you know you've got this violent imagery at at first glance of jesus coming this war imagery and And if you take that and wet it with certain passages in the Old Testament, you can do what some medieval Christians did, which is perpetuate all kinds of... um, Even just warfare is is, um, not really accurate to say. I mean, real atrocities. I mean, Christians in the name of Jesus celebrating with the praise of God on their lips, going into cities and killing Muslim children, women, even innocents, non-combatants. And I know for some people, there's there's an immediate reaction. Oh, it wasn't that simple. The Crusades, there's there's all kinds of a different backstory, and they were doing it defensively. And I I get that. I've read all this stuff. Um, I know that they were invited by the Eastern Christians to defend them, and the Turks were super expansionist and violent. Um, But when when we read some of the writings, even by Christian leaders, it's really clear they failed to recognize that we don't expand the kingdom of God through violent threat and intimidation and force. I do believe there is a place for just war um, in a broken world, but we have to understand that there have been times when Christians have thought, yeah, like, you got to do what you got to do. And if we threaten someone to become a Christian at the point of the sword, and they do, like, that's not ideal, but it's kind of a win, because at least they are going to be with Jesus forever. And Revelation says you're actually co-opting, in a sense, the spirit of the beast. You're using the threat of violence to achieve good ends. And the subtext of Revelation is be very careful as a church not to be corrupted by the temptation of the beast. Because Revelation isn't just about how you as an individual Christian should be careful and uh, fight the kingdom, uh, fight for the kingdom of God. It's also, it's letters to churches. And uh, Dr. Dan uh, Morrison, who I was listening to this week, uh, teach on Revelation he had a great line. He said, man, we, we've missed some, an important symbol in Revelation 19, which is when you see the beast and you see the prostitute riding the beast and then you see the bride being presented at the marriage supper, don't, don't bypass that. Make sure you see it's the prostitute that rides the beast, not the bride. The bride doesn't say, hey look at this awesome thing. We'll, we'll deal with it. Well. Like, we're okay. I mean, the, the, the prostitute, you know, the, the cultural forces behind Rome, they, they can't harness the beast. It's destructive, but we'll use it for godly ends. The prostitute rides the beast. The bride doesn't. Now, again, I don't want people to hear me saying Christians shouldn't be involved in politics or be apolitical. I don't believe that. Um, that's a separate series of messages, probably. But again, this temptation that we see in different parts of our world today, even within places in Canada, that if we as Christians, if the church could just rise up and put this person, put this party into political power, poof, like honestly, that would give us more relief than anything. If we we're honest with ourselves, there's people who were like, that would be as close to the kingdom of God coming this side of heaven, like poof, and it's like, that is like, in a sense, you could argue Revelation is arguing completely against that view. We have to be very, very careful. Now, we don't want to push things on people in a violent way, often, anymore, thank God, but we can still do evangelism and discipleship, even within some churches, under the threat, under social threat, under, uh, within the church political force, under intimidation, under manipulation. And sometimes people justify this by saying, well, kind of the ends justify the means. And I think it's really important for us to understand and be reminded and to allow Revelation to remind us that we don't ever achieve godly ends through ungodly means. It's tempting to say, well, I know it's not ideal, but what if we did it this way? And we have to always hold ourselves individually and as a church to making sure that if we want the kingdom of God to advance, we're doing that by living into the vision of the kingdom that Jesus teaches us to. We do wage war. Life is war. But we don't wage war like the world does. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And to me, the summary passage for all of this is Romans 12, 21. We don't don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's not don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, like not quite as evil, but doing it in Jesus' name. And that's tricky, right? I mean, that's really hard. Because a lot of us haven't thought through, I know I haven't in certain areas of my life, it's been a real challenge over the last number of years to say, am I just changing the ends that I want in my behavior, or am I actually allowing Jesus to change the means through which I achieve those ends? That's that's very challenging discipleship, but we need to be thinking through that as a church. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up there. Jesus is coming back. We're going to see what he does once he comes back, beginning next week. But because Jesus is coming back, we can live in hope, and we should live in obedience, and we should live to bless our neighbors. Overcoming evil with good, overcoming greed with generosity, overcoming hatred with love and suspicion with trust, slander with honor, callousness with care, and divisiveness with unity. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray.